Josh Perini with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. And yes, that's Dick Dale, the king of surf guitar, classic Americana, right? Well, not so fast. It turns out Dick Dale grew up among Lebanese immigrants in Boston, and the music he heard in his family home and in that community became a huge influence on his signature staccato guitar style. Dale is just one of the surprising legacies from over 150 years of immigration out of the Eastern Mediterranean, and notably the region we now know as Lebanon. On this program, we'll trace that history to two unexpected places, Brazil and Ghana. In both these countries, Lebanese immigrants have had a lasting effect on local culture and music. All that on this special hip deep edition, Lebanon 2 Diasporas. Immigration has been always a constant in all the history of Lebanon until now because we don't have a stable living conditions. We don't have, you know, good governance yet on all the area. We don't have consequently good uh, growing economical conditions. So that's uh, the issue. I mean, there is a sort of a culture of immigration. That's Nabil Nassif, professor at the American University of Beirut and nephew of the legendary composer Zaki Nassif. Nabil says his uncle's music is tinged with nostalgia for relatives who left for distant lands. Nabil traces this culture of immigration back to the mid-19th century. You see, in 1840, uh, the first civil war ended up by dividing Mount Lebanon between the Druzes and the Christians. So the southern part was Druze and the northern part was Christian. But that did not work. And it ended up by a second civil war in 1860, of course, civil strife, bad economic conditions, these are the two reasons why the people immigrate. The privations imposed by the Ottoman Empire in the late 19th century also drove people away. And later, in the years before World War I, famines in the region inspired yet another wave of immigration out of Lebanon and Syria. By the way, the music we are hearing comes from a more recent immigrant from Lebanon to France trumpeter Ibrahim Malouf. To get us in the mood for Lebanese Brazil, here's Ibrahim Malouf with a track that uses Balkan brass and Brazilian batucada percussion.
from Lebanon by way of Paris and with the taste of Brazil, Ibrahim Malouf. Georges Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide's Hip Deep Edition, Lebanon 2 Diasporas. Major support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Endowment for the Arts. All right, time to meet one of our principal guides to Lebanese Brazil. My name is Robert Moser, and I'm a professor of Portuguese and Brazilian studies at the University of Georgia. My work deals with uh, Portuguese, uh, Brazilian, and Lusophone African literature in general, but I've had um, an interest over the years in immigrant populations that have come to the United States and uh, worked and lived and written here, as well as in Brazil, for example. Now, you might not think of Brazil as a haven for Lebanese people, but it is, in a big way. The largest Lebanese population outside of Lebanon is in Brazil, uh, and significantly so. At least 7 million, some estimate up to 13 million people of Lebanese descent living in Brazil. The second largest number would be the Lebanese population in the United States. But the number in the U.S. is much smaller, less than one million. In Brazil, Robert Moser says you can feel the presence of Lebanon. Some of the manifestations that you might notice range from politics to the food you might eat in a corner luncheonette in just about any city. It's very common to order a kibbe or a esfia, one of these meat pies. They serve sandwiches called beiruchis, right, from Beirut, steak sandwich. One of the most popular fast food chains, Habib, sells Arab food. You go into the center of the city of Sao Paulo, for example, and there are entire blocks where textile stores and clothing stores that have been run by generations of Lebanese families uh, selling textiles, selling their wares. And then you might come across bakeries, for example, in the downtown of Rio de Janeiro, numerous restaurants selling very traditional Lebanese food, a hundred-year-old tobacco shop uh, called the Cedar of Lebanon. And then at the more institutional level, you have social clubs that are very important to the Lebanese and to the Syrians. For example, you have the Sirio Lebanese Athletic Club in Sao Paulo. And this is a place where people come and meet and they eat uh, Middle Eastern food and they socialize. One of the most established hospitals in Brazil is the Hospital Sirio Libanese in Sao Paulo. But how did so many Lebanese and Syrians come to a place like Brazil in the first place? Let's go back to the start. Here's Robert Moser. At the end of the 19th century, both Syrians and Lebanese were inclined to leave their homeland, uh, mainly because they were living in a rather oppressive situation under the Ottoman Empire. They were also seeking economic opportunities abroad, and the Americas represented a real place of opportunity for them. You certainly see that in the United States with the large populations that settled in New York City and other locations. Interestingly, some of these immigrants who thought that they were going to North America realized as the ship that they were on pulled into port that they in fact were in South America. 
they knew that they were getting a passage to the Americas, and perhaps the distinction between North and South was, uh, <laughs> was uh, not fully realized. Robert Moser says it was no accident that so many people from the Eastern Mediterranean ended up specifically in Brazil. The emperor of Brazil throughout a good portion of the 19th century was Dom Pedro II, a constitutional monarch, very enlightened, very interested in the sciences and in the humanities, international cultures. And he visited the Middle East twice, uh, once in 1871 and then in 1876. There are several instances where apparently he broke away from his uh, group of visitors and would mingle with the common people and, in fact, encouraging them to visit Brazil and perhaps even make a life in Brazil. This is, of course, a time when Brazil is beginning to industrialize and beginning to expand its skilled workforce, and they saw Europeans and even people coming from Asia and the Middle East as an opportunity to do that. And sure enough, some of the first immigrants started to arrive shortly after that. they arrived in Brazil with a Turkish passport, and it wasn't until later that some of the finer distinctions between Lebanese and Syrians became better known. Immigrants from Syria and Lebanon included farmers, entrepreneurs, and intellectuals fleeing strict Ottoman rule. It was a diverse group, although most of them were Christian, not Muslim. There were certainly some Muslims, but the larger group of immigrants were Roman Catholic, Melkite, some Protestants. So it's really the Eastern Orthodox churches that constitute the religious background of most of these immigrants. The distance and autonomy immigrants experienced in Brazil proved liberating. It led to a flourishing of literary activity in the early 20th century. Ethnomusicologist A.J. Rassi accompanied Robert Moser to Brazil. What's important is that people who did go to Brazil, many of whom were from rural villages actually in Lebanon, uh, larger towns also to some extent, established a renaissance, a cultural revival, really almost unrivaled in the history of Arab literature. For Professor Rassi, who had a number of relatives in Brazil, this history is personal. Growing up in Lebanon, the image of Brazil and our relatives whom we haven't met was so much alive through the letters they wrote back, nostalgic, missing us. There was one letter I found that my father wrote to his brother-in-law about my birth. So very interesting, that connection back and forth. Also part of their presence came to us from poems that we read in school by the poets of the Mahjar, the immigrant poetry. Some of the poems had a very sort of modernistic, fresh flavor to them, impeccable. What they wrote in Arabic was so impressive. Many, actually, the elite educated people ended in Brazil. The community there was the cream of the crop in terms of literary and artistic refinement. Really, over the first three decades of the 20th century, 
there was just a plethora of Lebanese newspapers and literary journals, periodicals that were emerging in the cities of Sao Paulo and Rio. Some historians have suggested that there were as many as 400 literary outlets that were produced at this time that probably surpassed the number of journals that um, had been published in all the other Arab countries. It's fascinating that the most significant Arab literary work of the early 20th century was happening in immigrant communities. In New York City, you have the Penn League with the leadership of Khalil Gibran. But in Brazil, you also had a very prolific literary group called the uh, Andalusian League. And this was uh, founded in the early 1920s. And it became a very important platform for not only literary production, poetry, short stories, etc., but also research, scientific activity, as well as a vehicle for political expression. These voices in Brazil became some of the leading proponents of Arab independence and a newfound Arab identity. Lucian Nuba, performed by the Al-Andalus Project. Listeners familiar with Afropop's hip-deep series on Al-Andalus will appreciate the logic of calling a literary society the Andalusian League. The fruitful merger of Hispanic and Arab culture is something much older than the arrival of Lebanese immigrants in Brazil. The term Andalusia evoked the Moorish occupation of the Iberian Peninsula from the 8th to the 15th century. And this was, of course, a time of great resurgence in science and in the arts and what was perceived to be a real social and religious toleration between Muslims and Jews and Christians on the Iberian Peninsula. And so I think what you saw was a group of Arab intellectuals who were inspired by this notion. And in the face of increasing religious conservatism back home, they saw themselves in a position where they could promote more freedom of expression. And they were doing this in the midst of a people in Brazil that they could argue had similar origins in that Portugal had been occupied by the Moors for almost 500 years. Robert Moser says this connection with history runs deep in the Brazilian psyche. It's literally a part of what it means to be Brazilian. One of the cornerstones of what makes Brazilian racial identity different is this notion of being racially more malleable, more tolerant. If we look at the three areas that Brazilians have long identified with, the Portuguese, African, and the indigenous, you could argue that the Arabs represent kind of the missing link within a broader sense of Brazilian national identity. In Brazilian cities, especially Sao Paulo, this led to a renaissance of literary production in the 1920s and 30s. 
The crossing over of Brazilian and Arab sensibilities was a big part of it. One example is the immigrant poet Shukri Alcori in his poem As Aventuras dos Finianos. You have a verse that is written in a blend of Syrian, Lebanese, and other Arabic dialects, together with Portuguese, indigenous, as well as even African terms. This is very consistent with one of the aesthetic and even ideological trends of the Brazilian modernist, anthropophagia, anthropophagy or cannibalism, this notion that filmmakers and poets and artists were able to be influenced, to be exposed, but at the same time transform that cultural product into something that was their own indigenous Brazilian hybrid. As we mentioned, a number of AGRC's own ancestors migrated to Brazil in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. My uncle, Sami Rassi, established a journal, and I saw about 20 volumes, very thick volumes, all in Arabic, occasionally in things in Portuguese, poetry by many Lebanese famous poets in diaspora. It talked about the latest in science, the 1920s. It also gave me so much information about musical life. You see that some Arab singers, musicians came and performed. Sometimes, besides the Arab songs that they were still performing, you find musical performances in the Brazilian idiom. Some people played the piano, others sang songs from Brazil. Visiting Brazil and doing this research gave Professor Rassi a whole new window on the lives of his relatives there. It's really phenomenal. I used to think they were isolated, but you look at these magazines and you can see that they're advertising recordings by the famous, famous singers in the 1920s. They were selling them in record stores, local Arab record stores in Sao Paulo. They also invited uh, plays from Egypt, uh, theatrical production companies that came there and performed. Wadi Asafi went there also, spent a few years and became sort of the immigrant superstar. And they came back to Lebanon and brought in the sort of the style of nostalgia for the immigration. Iconic Lebanese singer Wadia Safi featured on past Afropop programs and singing a song by Zaki Nassif about the love of his homeland. Among the most celebrated Lebanese musical figures who lived in Brazil was Najib Hankash. He was sort of like superstar, delightful person, very funny. He had a beautiful voice, and he was so visible. Many events, Najib Hankash was there around. <laughs> حتى 
He was born in 1904 in a town called Zahla in northern Lebanon. And uh, Najib Hankash went to Brazil in 1922. In 1920s and 30s, he uh, produced some songs on local record labels. And those songs became popular among Lebanese and Syrian immigrant communities in Brazil. He performed uh, sort of parody types of songs, one of them making fun of the Lebanese immigrant person who goes to Brazil and becomes a millionaire and becomes a novorish. And he wants to marry a young woman and he can find one, but he tries to act very young and buys a fancy car. And then he marries a woman who uh, spends all his money and he becomes poor again. So the concerns are localized. Concerns of the immigrants concentrated on their own experience in the Mahjar, it means the place of immigration. Let's hear a little of that song, poking fun at immigrants. The title translates Story of the Peddler. بنت صغيري ما بتاخدنا وبنت كبيري هاي ما بدنا احترنا والله حيرنا هاي طويلي وهي قصيري هاي دشنيعة وهي رفيعة حتى برسنا دب الشاب وبعد الشبرة عالكتاب وبلش يدق الأبو A parody of Lebanese immigrants in Brazil by the great Najib Hankash. Another of his famous songs is an adaptation of poetry from the celebrated Lebanese philosopher and writer Khalil Gibran. You know, Gibran is really a remarkable figure internationally. He's not just a poet who came from Lebanon and settled in America and wrote some books. The most famous of Halil Gibran's books, of course, is The Prophet. Published in 1923 and translated into more than 40 languages, The Prophet has sold an estimated 20 million copies. Halil Gibran came from a village in North Lebanon, but as Professor Rassi says, he made his career primarily as an American living in New York State. Gibran was born in 1883, died in 1931, and he really bloomed as a philosophic kind of writer, poet. He was influenced by figures like William Blake and Nietzsche and others. He wrote in Arabic and in English, actually, and I read Gibran in Arabic when I was in Lebanon in school. He is known for giving a new, fresh breath of imagination and artistry into the writing, the, the Arabic language. In one of his books, Gibran wrote a poem about the reed flute called the Nai. We know that the reed flute was a very, very important instrument in Islamic culture in general particularly in the Sufi tradition. Uh, Jalal al-Din Rumi, of course, wrote a famous poem about the, the reed flute and its sound being akin to moaning, remembering. The instrument cries to go back to the reed garden where it came from, very mystical image. Gibran's poem is a little different. It says something like, give me 
the Nye and play for the sound of this instrument survives beyond eternity. It continues after time ends. As an eye player myself, I identify with these both Rumi and Gibran. We are hearing A.J. Rassi in a memorable piece he recorded on Nye with the Kronos Quartet. It's called Ecstasy. Here's an excerpt from Late in the Peace. Gibran appealed so much to uh, many, many Lebanese in the diaspora because he epitomized success and imagination, traversing physical distances and cultural barriers. For the Brazilians, it meant so much. Many Brazilians wrote about the trials of immigration. It was very hard to come and suffer and build yourself. And the word they use is saga. Among those in Brazil who were inspired by Gibran was the composer Najib Ankash. Ankash particularly loved that Gibran poem above the Nai flute. Najib Ankash took lines from that poem. He composed a tune for it. And interestingly enough, part of that tune has a hint of a tango, La Comparsita. He also worked with a orchestrator and composer in Brazil, his name was Gabriel Migliori. Here's Najib Ankash singing that song. The title is Ateni Naya, Give Me the Nai. When Hankash returned to Lebanon in the late 40s to become a popular comedian and television host, he re-recorded a number of his songs. The song based on Gibran's poem about the Nai gained the attention of the country's most eminent musicians, Ferouz and the Rabani brothers. And Ferouz sang the song and became a big hit. Ferouz singing the words of Khalil Gibran set to music by Najib Ankash in Brazil. Coming up, the Lebanese factor in Brazilian films and soap operas and in Ghanaian Afro-rock and high life. You can read our interviews with Robert Moser, A.J. Rassi and so much more on our website, afropop.org. I'm Georges Collinet and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. Segura o 
We continue with Lebanese and Syrian cultural players in Brazil and with this gentleman, Sergio Ricardo. Fiz maldade com meu bem, magoei seu coração, fiz os seus olhos bonitos chorar. Depois tudo virou nóia, boquinha dos meus beijos Disse triste sem ternura, nunca mais, nunca mais Tem razão em não querer... Sérgio Ricardo, he actually was born João Lutfi in uh, 1932. His parents were actually both Syrian immigrants and he became one of the leading voices of Bossa Nova and the popular Brazilian music. This was during in the 1950s and 1960s and 70s. He composed music. He was a filmmaker. He worked on several important films during the 1960s uh, as part of the Cinema Novo movement or the new cinema movement. He wrote the soundtrack to Glauber Rocha's Deus e Diabo na Terra do Sol or Black God, White Devil. As Robert Moser says, Sergio Ricardo started with Bossa Nova, but his music evolved in quite original ways, as you hear in this song Baraventu or Windward. You can tell that he is uniquely interested in his Arab background. He opens his memoirs recounting the importance of Middle Eastern music in his upbringing, how his mother would sing and his father would play the oud. He recounts one particular moment where he found his father in the backyard building a bonfire to burn this oud that his father had played for years and years. It was his beloved instrument. And what Sergio understood was that his father was associating the news that he had just received that his own father had died, Sergio's grandfather. And Sergio's father began to believe that whenever he played the oud, something bad would happen. And so he took it upon himself to destroy the instrument, which is a very powerful image if you think about it. The father burning his own past and how the music becomes kind of the soundtrack of his own longing for his homeland. Let's hear a song Sergio wrote and performed for Black God, White Devil. The film is a gritty tableau of rough social realities in the Brazilian Northeast, and the song Antonia das Mortes is sung for an assassin. 
Sergio Ricardo's song begins darkly, but ends with bravado. Sergio Ricardo with a song from the film Black God, White Devil. One of the most important Brazilian novelists of Lebanese descent is Raduan Nasser, born in 1935. One of his novels was made into a highly acclaimed film by Luis Fernando Carvalho in 2001. It's called To the Left of the Father. This novel deals with a young man's rupture with his Lebanese immigrant family in the interior of Sao Paulo. It shows, in a broad sense, this collision between patriarchal authority and the subversion that the son is pursuing. And it was written at a time in the 1970s when, of course, Brazil is under the throes of a military dictatorship. So it shows, in a very interesting way, the oppressive climate that uh, Brazilian society had found itself in since 1964 when the military dictatorship took over until the mid-1980s. That subversive son is one dark character, haunted by rebellious urges and incestuous desire. You have moments during the film when Lebanese folk music emerges. Uh, there's a scene where the narrator is paying particular attention to his sister, the object of his desire. And in the scene, she dances to the mijwiz, a reeded instrument that is used in important celebrations. And um, the mijwiz is accompanying a folkloric line dance called the dubki. The scene unfolds in a rural area. You see family members arriving in kind of a foresty glen. People bring instruments with them. There's food being cooked. 
There's a lot of clapping, and eventually the dub key line forms. There's a collective feel to it. You have people clasping arms and dancing all together. And then there's a distinct moment when the sister breaks away from that and begins to dance on her own. And her movements are being accompanied by these instruments, and particularly the mijwiz, this very passionate instrument. To the left of the father is a complex film, a story of rebellion and isolation, playing out on many levels, political, ethnic, social, and sexual. You know, one legacy of the Lebanese and Syrian presence in Brazil is the popularity of belly dancing. Belly dancing is largely out of favor in the more conservative societies of the Middle East, but it's thriving in Brazil. Just go to YouTube and search on Brazilian belly dancing, you'll see what I mean. AJ Rassi was impressed by the belly dancing scene he encountered in Brazil. The dance scene is amazing, not just among immigrants, but among the Brazilian community. Arab music has become very, very, very important. My wife, Barbara Rassi, and I, we were there in an apartment, and we heard Arab music coming from the windows of the neighbors. I met some of the neighbors, nobody looked Lebanese or Syrians, but I'm hearing some Egyptian belly dance, popular music. We went to a festival for Arab culture. There were at least 20 or more dancers. Fabulous, reminded me of big, big Hollywood events. (laughs) And they're Brazilian and they're excellent. And then something that also struck us that the orchestra, the, the musicians have come, many of them, directly from the Arab world more recently. So the newest layer is music coming directly to Brazil through globalization, if you will, or through direct contacts uh, with uh, people immigrating, coming from Lebanon, probably after the civil war. Robert Moser says the contrasting social mores of Brazil and today's Arab societies was a subject of a popular telenovela or soap opera in Brazil. It's called The Clone. In the telenovela, The Clone, you have a situation where a young Brazilian girl, but of Moroccan ethnicity, grows up in Brazil, but moves with her family back to Morocco. And there she's really forced to adjust to different cultural and religious norms and expectations that are much more conservative. Ali, a very wise and powerful man, a man who puts his family and the traditions of his homeland above everything else. We must follow our religions just as our ancestors did. He must watch over his niece who left her home in Brazil and now must adjust to new customs, the alluring jade. Uncle, I can't be what you want. Your law is too much. You'll follow it or you'll leave here. I am not going to marry someone I haven't even seen. Is that some kind of a threat? And so she's involved in this kind of bicultural negotiation where she knows she's different and she has to adapt to a new milieu. And so a lot of the tension that plays out in this Brazilian telenovela uh, stems from this negotiation that has to take place. Why are they dressed like that? It's the law. Don't you understand? They can't run around in shorts with their skin exposed where men can see them everywhere. 
Culture Clash on the Brazilian telenovela The Clone. But coming back to music, perhaps the best-known Brazilian artists with Mediterranean roots are the virtuoso classical guitar duo Sergio and Odair Assad, the Assad Brothers. One Piece by Sergio adapts a theme from the introduction to a famous performance by Um Kalthum. Let's hear an excerpt from Tahiya Li Osulina. From Brazil with roots in the Eastern Mediterranean, Sergio and Odair Assad. Before we leave Brazil, A.J. Rassi takes us back to the beginning of our story, that moment when a young Lebanese man leaves his home in search of a better life. It was a mixed feeling. Many mothers would say, go, my son, go away. Don't get stuck with this place. But, you know, when a mother hugs her son, 17-year-old, and she knows she's not going to see him again. So it's a very powerful feeling of loss. But at the same time, you know, they go to Brazil, they succeed, they send money, and they establish themselves. I think the image of the homeland stays in their minds. But the image is romanticized. And understandably, they miss the people, they miss the good things they had. It's interesting. I think immigration is very complex. Our identity as immigrants is so multi-layered, and sometimes we emphasize one identity more than the others, depending on the context. We think of our roots, but also we live from life to life, and we build our self and our identities. We define them in light of what we experience in the diaspora. I don't think that Brazilians think every day about their Arab identity. But I do think that in a way that perhaps North Americans are not accustomed to thinking, they are very accustomed to this constant sense of Middle Eastern culture being interwoven into Brazilian society, whether it's through the food, this Brazilian television show, nightclubs in Sao Paulo or Rio in which uh, there's Middle Eastern music played the numerous belly dancing festivals and workshops that you find in various cities in Brazil. I think on an unconscious level, Brazilians see this as not something necessarily foreign, but something that echoes back into their own past. Robert Moser, and before him, A.J. Rassi, and of course,
course, Sergio and Odair Assad. Now we move to a different tale of the Lebanese diaspora. Afropop producer Benning Air has this report from Accra, Ghana. When Afropop went to Accra to research the past and present of Ghanaian music, we knew there had been an active Lebanese community there. You can't read about the 60s and 70s heyday of high life and Afrofunk without encountering the name Faisal Helwani, creator of the legendary Napoleon Club and this classic band, Hedgele Sounds, featuring on this track, Hugh Masekela. <laughs> But in Ghana, we could see the Lebanese presence was not just a thing of the past. We spotted a posse of young Lebanese camped out at Labadi Pleasure Beach. And while interviewing the rapper Manifest at the Lexington Hotel, we heard Arabic pop music blasting from one of the hotel bars. We stepped in to find a crowd of Middle Eastern guys clapping and dancing to music from home. At one point, we stopped for a meal at the Lebanese restaurant at the Commodore Guest House and fell into conversation with the proprietor, Talal Haman. Talal came to Ghana in 1964 to join relatives in a community that had immigrated over 50 years earlier. They were part of that same wave that brought so many Lebanese and Syrians to Brazil before World War I. The story Talal told echoed the Brazilian scenario in many ways. Before 1914, the Ottoman Empire was the ruler of the Middle East. In Lebanon, the Ottoman, you know, to feed the army, they took the whole food from Lebanon and leave the Lebanese population hungry. People were eating each other. People struggled. Many of them just leave everything and go. Some gone to Brazil, uh, some gone to America but not Africa. Africa, they came here by mistake. The ship dropped them in Cape Coast, and they thought that is Brazil. <laughs> so apparently immigrants thinking they were going to New York wound up in Brazil, and those thinking they were going to Brazil wound up in Cape Coast, Ghana. But Talal says Lebanese arrivals quickly took to Ghana. They start to bring their relatives. If you have a brother, come here, it's better. Life is better, is easier, a lot of food come over. Maybe it's a carpenter or shoemaker, it was nice. And then, uh, you know, Lebanese, where they settle, they do good. The population like them. If you can see that most of Accra, the old Accra, built by the Lebanese. Coco House is one of Accra's most memorable colonial era buildings. Coco House itself is built by a Lebanese architect. But I was curious about the role Lebanese Ghanaians played in local music. I sought out Malik Kriam, a founding member of the fabled late 60s Afro-rock band, the Psychedelic Aliens. These days, Malik manages four local bands that play high life, reggae, soul, and pop around Accra. He sits in on rock and pop standards when he feels like it, but just for fun. 
Malik's real claim to fame goes back to 1967, when he teamed up with a diverse group of musicians to form a rock band. When we met, Malik pulled out the Psychedelic Aliens' one international CD and showed me some pictures. That's Riyadh. Riyadh is full Lebanese. That's Roberto. He's the guy who speaks French and Spanish. That's Ricky Telfo. That's Ape Thompson, the drummer. And, but that's me. Check the sideburns. Yeah, well, all of us have big birds. Yeah. That's Nadim. Nadim is uh, half Lebanese, uh, half Ghanaian like me. You know, we're all born here, so you know. So it was a mix, you know, uh, kind of thing. So we call ourselves the Magic Psychedelic Aliens. Malik's father came from Lebanon early in the 20th century. Like those folks Talal was talking about, Malik's dad heard from relatives that life was good in Ghana. So he went to join them, started a business and a family. Malik himself has never visited his ancestral home. You see, because of the skirmishes every now and then in Lebanon, it put me off going there. But what about him? Did he want to go there? Well, he would go on a visit. In two years' time, he would go for a visit, you know, for about a week or two, come back here. Uh, here was his base. He grew up here. I mean, it came to a time that most of the people he knew because of his age had died and all that. Finally, he decided not to go because nothing there for him. Malik says his father did feel nostalgia for Lebanon, but it wasn't a guiding force in his life. He used to play Lebanese music, but my father, funny enough, because he grew up here, he was into ballroom dancing. He was an expert, especially when it came to tango. But when he, he became older, then he started to play Lebanese stuff. But then when he was young, he was, you know, into ballrooms kind of music. Malik grew up as Ghana changed from being a British colony to a trailblazing independent nation. He absorbed a lot, including languages. I speak English, I speak German, I speak Ghana, I speak Chi, a little uh, Arabic, uh, a little French, you know. And he sings in Spanish. To use my corazón, you song. Day Mikere to use my Tommy say take on But as it happened, 60s rock would be Malik's calling. The psychedelic aliens started out doing covers from the Bee Gees to Hendrix, but eventually they created their own Afro rock sound. the Lebanon club. They had instruments there, and uh, that's how we used to go and practice and all that. 
but they weren't playing Lebanese music. Because at the time, you know, Lebanese music wasn't all that popular here. These days, some of our radio stations play Lebanese music, Arabic music, yes, but during that time, no. We played maybe one or two Lebanese music, you know, amongst our repertoire, but that was it, not more. Malik thinks the varied cultural perspectives in his band probably helped them come up with their original sound. At their prime, in the late 60s, the psychedelic aliens played all the big clubs in Accra. And it was in that context that they hooked up with the Lebanese Ghanaian who did the most for local music, Faisal Helwani. Faisal, he was our buddy. You know, because we started, we were half Lebanese, full Lebanese in the Magic Aliens. When he came over, he saw us playing and all that. That's how he went into music, because of the Magic Aliens. I'm telling you, that's the truth. A lot of people don't know. Even Talal Haman at the Lebanese restaurant remembered Faisal Helwani. He was before me long ago, and he studied in Ghana, speak fluent the local languages, and then he moved well with the people. Well, Faisal Helwani, everybody rush. I can say that he's a jovial. He cracks jokes. <laughs> in Ghana, I love him. Imagine he is the first Lebanese to die in Lebanon and send him back to Ghana to be buried. He was sick. He went to Lebanon for treatment. He died in Lebanon. In his will, say, bury me in Ghana. And true to his wish, they brought him back and buried in Ghana. Hedgele Sounds. Author, producer, guitarist, and professor at the University of Ghana, John Collins knew Faisal Helwani well. As a young man, John spent a lot of time at Faisal's club, the Napoleon. Well, it was the central place. Was it Charlie Gillett used to talk about that there's a satellite, sort of a spiritual musical satellite that hovers over a country at a certain critical time and sometimes over a particular spot? The shrine in Lagos and Napoleon were those two places, and they were linked together because Faisal was Fella's friend. And there was a lot of very heavy-duty experimentation being done in both places. Perhaps Ghana's most prolific music historian, John Collins, also knows a thing or two about how Faisal Helwani got into the music business. It started in the 60s when Faisal was about 17 or 18. He was running an ice cream factory or something, or distribution network, so he had some money. So he fancied himself as a music promoter. He was promoting bands like Uhuru and others. And at the same time, he was the one promoting Fela in Ghana. And as we know, Fela Kuti's time in Ghana was crucial to his development as an artist. 
Fella was also a hot commodity in those days, something surely not lost on Faisal. Well, because he's a natural Lebanese businessman, he, he knew how to make money from the age of 16. But his love was African music. He was just crazy about African music. You know, he was a very difficult person to work with sometimes, but his real love for African music was there. By blood, he wasn't an African. He was born here, but he was pure Lebanese, but he married an African, had African children. But um, I would say that because he was a good business entrepreneur, knew how to make money, he had money to invest into the music industry. So that would be the advantage. And he had a network of friends he could fall on. For instance, if he got broke once, which often happened, he would have friends who he could work for or work with, get the money back, and then he'd go back into music again. And by all accounts, Faisal adored working with his band, Hedgele Sounds. Look, he was a guy who really wanted to be a musician. And I can tell you what happened in this club. He'd get the band around, and he'd put his finger on a keyboard and play a note. And then everybody had to weave a song around him. And then afterwards, he said he wrote the song. He was always doing this. <laughs> Faisal was clearly one of a kind, but his enormous contributions to African music fit into a larger narrative about Lebanese in diaspora. I think he was exceptional, but I've known other Lebanese like that as well, who are into Ghanaian music and into things like music production, promotions, boxing promotions, Ghanaian boxers. But Faisal made a really significant contribution. So there you have it, another surprising tale of the Lebanese diaspora. Thank you, Banning. Terrific report. But unfortunately, we are out of time. Major support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art, and PRI, Public Radio International affiliate stations around the U.S. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. Thanks to Robert Moser, A.J. Rassi, and Malek Kriam for their help with this program. Thanks also to Marlon Bishop, DJ Greg Kaz, Kathleen Hood, and especially to Marilyn Farhat for her amazingly accurate interview transcriptions. Visit afropop.org for interviews, videos, photos, blog posts, and more from Ghana and Lebanon. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and production for this program by Banning Air. And join us next week for another edition of Afropop Worldwide. Our chief audio engineer and co-producer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Mike Kaplan, Brandon Baker and Stephanie LeBeau. Banning Air edits our website, afropop.org. Our director of operations is Ben Richman, and I'm Georges Collinet. R.I. Public Radio International.